I wonder what you think of when you hear the word catechism. A catech- Maybe you don't think of anything. Um, but a catechism is simply a, a text that summarizes the basic principles of Christian doctrine, Christian teaching. It's specific to a certain church or denomination, and it usually is assembled in a a question-and-answer format. Um, Often they're numbered. Throughout history, the catechism has been one of the most common means by which churches and and parents have trained both both children and new converts in the, the great doctrinal truths of the Bible. Unfortunately, in the last century or so, catechizing became less and less popular as more and more churches developed both kind of an independent spirit and a, and a no-creed-but-the-Bible attitude, um, which is in itself their creed. This has led to, frankly, if I could be honest, this has led to a vast ignorance in the Scriptures. Um, it has led to theological innovation and a and a general sense of not really knowing what we believe or why we believe it. In some circles, even like the one that I grew up in, um, any mention of the word catechism was met with suspicion because it sounded Roman Catholic. But our forefathers in the faith didn't see it that way. Nearly every group of churches that came out of the Protestant Reformation they developed their own, their own confession of faith and their own catechism in order to state in an official document what they believed and then to equip those inside the church to, to teach the, that doctrine to those coming into the church, whether, as I said, that was newly converted believers or to their own children. A catechism is, is simply a way of passing on the doctrines of the faith. And, and to be honest, history kind of shows us it's, it's probably the best way. Helps us to memorize, to hide God's word in our heart. And so in the late 1600s, and you know that I like history and English history in the 1600s is my favorite era probably. But in the late 1600s following the the publication of the Westminster Standards, the English Baptists published their own confession of faith, as well as what is known as um, the Baptist Catechism, which is very similar in many of its points to the Westminster Shorter Catechism that some of you have heard of and even have read. Listen to, this is from the Baptist Catechism. This is number 93. Just a question and answer. This is the question. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, so the preaching and teaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. All which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. We call these the ordinary means of grace. Number 96 says this. How do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? Answer. 
Baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, not for any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those that by faith receive them. In other words, participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Rather, Christ uses them through the working of the Holy Spirit to build up and strengthen your faith through the right participation in them. And then one more. It's number 102 from the Baptist Catechism says this. What is the Lord's Supper? Answer. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to his appointment, his death is shown forth. And the manner uh, and the worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Turn to, if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 14 to 22 this morning. We'll be looking at these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's just stop and pray here. Lord, even as we sang... I pray that you would feed us from your word this morning, that you would nourish us spiritually, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, that we might put away the sin that so easily entangles and put on Christ, that we might be holy as he is holy. Help us to understand these things, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our current uh, political or maybe cultural moment would be a better way to put this. One of the sharpest criticisms of Christianity that critics have for us is our lack of inclusiveness, right? Now this could be for several different things. It could be racism. That's the latest popular accusation. But it could also be accusations about gender or sex about socioeconomic status, but in reality, our accusers hate the fact that Christianity is an exclusive religion. There's only one way, one truth, one life, Jesus said. 
only one way to the Father, and it is through him. But along with Christ himself, the Apostle Paul was insistent that Christianity is an exclusive religion. But just as it is increasingly uncommon in our day, so it also was uncommon in the paganism of Paul's time. In fact, today it is becoming more and more popular to say, you can believe anything you want as long as it's not Christianity. And that shouldn't surprise us. After all, the, the world hates Christ, and as he said, therefore the world will hate us. But take heart, he has overcome the world. Well, in the city of Corinth, we're working through uh, this letter to the Corinthian church. The city of Corinth was a city that literally sat in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, famous for its cultic prostitutes. But there were many other temples in the city of Corinth. Uh, there was a, a large temple to the Greek god Apollo, for example. We also know because because Paul actually spent time there, as was his habit when he arrived in a new city, there was also a, a large Jewish synagogue. The Corinthian people were used to living with a, a multitude of religions around them. And, although probably not the devout Jews, but many of the residents of Corinth, in fact, probably, probably all of the Gentiles in Corinth, most of the city, they were used to joining into with, the, with the, the, the sacrificial meals and the, uh, to the various Greek and, and Roman gods. And to them it was fine, because they believed in a, in a pantheon of gods, a multitude of gods, none of which required an exclusive relationship. In fact, by the New Testament era, the Romans had overtaken the Greeks as the primary world superpower, so to speak. And when they did, they, they simply adopted the Greek gods and made them their own. They just renamed them. They were very pragmatic about their views of the gods, and this sort of trickled throughout the entire culture. Not only was the, uh, the Caesars very pragmatic, and, and, and the government in Rome very pragmatic, and that meant that the soldiers were very pragmatic, and eventually the people were very pragmatic in their view of the gods. They worshipped in whatever way was most useful for them. Their attitude was, you go ahead and worship your gods, and so will we. We just want you to worship our gods as well. Eventually, that devolved into emperor worship, which is where persecution eventually developed for Christians who refused to bow down to the Roman god, emperor. We could almost say that their philosophy was, the more gods honored, the more gods that we honored, that we pay homage to, that we sacrifice to, the more, uh, the more gods that are honored, the greater the chance of success in life. It's kind of a religious pragmatism. It almost sounds American. Well, Paul was answering the church's question. By the time we get here, if you remember, we've studied this for a while now. Beginning in verse uh, chapter 8, uh, he's answering a question about food offered to idols. Uh, can't we just eat this food? He points out that this kind, of, this kind of syncretism, as he gets to here, this point here in chapter 10, this kind of blending of religious practices is unacceptable for Christians. So essentially, they were asking him, how far is too far? They were asking him, where is the line? 
I want to go right up to that line. Back in chapter 8, when he began to address this, he initially agreed with their point that an idol has no real existence, right? It's just a statue. It's just something made with human hands. There's no real gods behind those things. And so, therefore, it's just food. The, offer, the, idol, uh, the, the meat that had been offered to those idols is just food. But he also cautions them. He tells them to be, to be sensitive to the newer converts who had come to Christ from that paganism. And, in fact, he calls them to be willing to give up their own rights to eat whatever, Give up their own rights for the sake of the gospel. But now here in chapter 10, he warns them that they are playing a dangerous game. They're walking really close to that line of idolatry. We saw a couple of weeks ago that he compares them uh, in the opening of chapter 10. He compares them to the wilderness generation of the nation of Israel. He is saying essentially, look, if they sinned, Those who literally uh, walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, led by the the cloud, the glory of God, if they sinned, those who were fed manna from heaven, if they sinned, those who drank water from the rock, if they could see God's miraculous provision and still bow down to a golden calf, how much more should the Corinthian Christians guard themselves against the same danger and now he brings them to the lord's table and he does so to remind them of christ's covenant promise to them and of their own covenant allegiance to christ because christianity is an exclusive religion and so we see here especially in verses well it's verses 14 to 17 but especially verses 16 and 17 Paul brings up this concept of participation in the Lord's Supper. Let me read these verses again. So verses 14 to 17 about participation in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that that Paul, again, is asking these rhetorical questions in verse 16. Do you see verse 16? The rhetorical questions that he asks. He, he he, He says these things expecting that the church will agree with what he is saying. That implies that they would have understood that the Lord's Supper, they they would have understood the Lord's Supper in a certain way. And I think we often miss that. I think it's because, I think the reason why we miss this is because in our, um, our Protestant rejection of Roman Catholic theology on this subject, we, we have run, theologically speaking, in the opposite direction. As Protestants, we've often rejected any notion of sacrament or a sacred rite, a sacred practice that might be seen as religious, and we've replaced it with something that we do for no other reason than, well, we're told to. 
But before we get into all of that, and we're getting into that today, we need to remember that Paul is making a contrast between the Lord's Supper and, and idolatry, or, or specifically uh, uh, idolatrous practices of meals being sacrificed, meat being sacrificed to idols. He's contrasting these two things. And so in verse 14, he begins, he, he continues with this common biblical theme of flee idolatry. You can see this theme throughout the scriptures. The Apostle John, writing in his first epistle, 1 John, the, he says the very same thing in the very last verse of that letter. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament as well. Think of our, think of our reading in 1 Kings that we've done over the last 16 or well, 17 weeks now. Uh, the idolatry, we miss it today, it's not there because it's telling specifically about Elijah, but you've seen the idolatry over and over and over again in the kings of Israel and the destruction that that idolatry brings. And so consider this thought as we think about this. If idolatry was a problem for the people of God in both the Old and the New Testaments, could it possibly still be an issue for us? Well, the answer to that is yes, by the way. What Paul is doing here is refuting their practice of um, kind of flaunting their Christian liberty as he appeals to them as a, as a sensible people, he says. He's saying that just as participation in the Lord's Supper represents and, and creates a fellowship of, of believers in worship of Christ, and, and he is considered to be present, so also pagan meals represent and create a, a fellowship of worshipers of pagan deities who are also considered to be present. Idols, however, instead of being just simply dumb and neutral... Instead of just simply being a, a piece of stone or a block of wood, they represent the realm of the demonic, Paul says here. Now, this is where we need to understand um, a couple of kind of fundamental truths or doctrines about the Lord's Supper for us to understand the argument that he's making here. So I want to take a, a, a little bit of a tangent this morning. Um, I think this will help us to understand what Paul is talking about in these couple of verses. Uh, within, the, within sort of the, the big tent of Christianity, there are four basic views of the Lord's Supper. First, and I mentioned this one earlier, there's the Roman Catholic view. In their view, the teaching of the church, the Eucharist as they call it, Eucharist comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving, that's where that came from. In their view, the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. Remember, the Roman Catholic system is, at its core, a works-based religion. And according to the Roman Catholic Church, participation in the sacraments leads to eternal life, probably, eventually. And incidentally, the Roman Church teaches that there are seven sacraments that are necessary for salvation, Whereas we believe Christ only left us with two, um, which are both given for our spiritual benefit, not of works that no one may boast. 
And again, according to the Roman church, the elements of the bread and the cup, when they're, when they're consecrated by the priest, they become the body and blood of Christ. The Eucharist is seen by the Roman church as a sacrifice. According to official church dogma, it makes present the sacrifice of the cross. The reformers, the Protestant reformers, rejected that, even calling it idolatry agreeing across the board with the scriptures that Christ's sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. It was sufficient. This is really the argument that is at the core of the five solas of the Reformation. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Well, coming out of the Roman Catholic view is the second view of the Lord's Supper, which is the Lutheran view. Luther rejected the Roman Catholic viewpoint, yet he maintained a real presence of Christ in the Supper. This one's a little bit harder to understand. I'm not going to spend much time on it. But Luther taught that Christ is in and under the bread and the wine. Later, the Augsburg Confession, which was developed from his teaching, taught that the body and blood of Christ are substantially present. That means that Christ is illocally present, almost like the soul is present in the bread and wine, like the soul of Christ is present in the bread and wine. That's developed over the last 500 years, but that's essentially the Lutheran viewpoint of the Lord's Supper. The third view of the Lord's Supper is what is sometimes called the Zwinglian view. It's the most fun to say. German reformer Ulrich Zwingli, uh, he rejected the idea that the body and blood of Christ are present in any, in any mysterious way and instead focused on the elements as symbols. The Lord's Supper, according to Zwingli, is a, is a memorial meal in which we remember Christ's work for us on the cross. And the bread and the wine are signs or symbols of his work and, and in his view nothing more than that. It's a very common view. In fact, it's probably the most common view in our country today. In its lowest form, it has sort of devolved um, into churches or small groups or even youth groups using, you know, Kool-Aid and cookies or whatever. But that's an incredibly low view of the scripture and an incredibly low view of Christ's death. And Zwingli himself would probably have called that blasphemy. Yet I think we can all agree that the Lord's Supper is at least a memorial of Christ's death for our sins and ought to be treated as such. We should all agree that the Lord's Supper is a serious part of church worship and should never be observed casually or flippantly. And then the fourth view, which is sometimes called the Reformed view, although that's not really fair to Zwingli, who was also a reformer. The final view here is most clearly articulated by John Calvin. And for Calvin, the signs, the bread in the cup, they're shadows of the heavenly or the spiritual reality. But think of your own shadow. Remember when the sun used to shine? I think it's shining today. Think of your own shadow. Your shadow is tied to you, is it not? It's tied to you. 
It's tied to the reality. So there's a connection between what is found on earth in what we eat and drink and what is found in heaven or in the spiritual. The earthly supper is a shadow or a sign of what is happening in heaven really. Or we could say what is happening spiritually, and that is that Christ is united with his people. And it's a, it's a foreshadow of the marriage supper of the Lamb, that, that feast at the Lord's table when Christians will celebrate with him in eternity. The supper is a, is a spiritual renewal of his new covenant with us. And according to this view, a Christian's union with Christ is strengthened by our eating and drinking in faith, remembering what Christ has done. So listen to how Luke records for us Jesus' institution of the supper, as we say. Turn, turn over to Luke chapter 22. I just want to read a few verses from Luke 22. This is when Jesus says, Uh, The words that Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 11 that I typically read when we take the bread and the cup. Luke 22, uh, verse 14 says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled uh, in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now turn over just a couple of pages to John chapter 6. A half a dozen or so pages in John's gospel. I want to look at a, I'm going to, this is a long passage where he's talking a lot about himself um, as the bread. And so I want to just pick out a couple of verses. I'm going to start in verse 35. This is a familiar verse, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread and the life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Skip down to verse 53. Jesus says, uh, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I jump down to verse 66 where it gets a little sad. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Clearly the significance is not in the bread or the cup as Roman and Lutheran churches teach. 
Those are merely signs and shadows of the reality, which is Jesus Christ himself. And the significance is also here in all of these things is, is the communal aspect of the supper. Jesus is the point, right? Jesus is the point of the supper. But we're doing this together. It's a communal aspect. The supper is a declaring of our covenantal allegiance. Jesus says that the cup is the new covenant in his blood, he had said. And it is through the covenant that the Lord says to us, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I believe that what we can see here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul is using this understanding of the Lord's Supper to illustrate why the Corinthians must flee idolatry. So now that I've given you four um, teachings of the Lord's Supper, let me give you three reasons why we must flee idolatry. Look again just at verses 16 and 17. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The first reason that Christians are to flee idolatry is because when we observe the Lord's Supper, there is a participation he says, and, th and that Greek, I don't pull out Greek words very often, but there's a couple that you should remember. The Greek word there is koinonia. It means fellowship or communion or participation. The Lord's Supper is a fellowship with Christ. Paul is asserting that, that just as people cannot eat and drink at the Lord's table casually, as mere observers, so also we cannot participate in idle feasts as casual, neutral observers. Do you understand that participation in the Lord's Supper is not a casual event in that way? Now, casual in the sense, not in the sense of what we wear, not in the sense of a formal, you know, dinner, Casual in the sense of, eh, whatever, I'll have a piece. Casual in the sense of not really thinking about it. We cannot participate in the Lord's Supper as a casual event. Just like how in the Old Testament, worship was regulated, right? And if worship in the Old Testament was done inappropriately... There could be dire consequences. We know this. So also, worship at the Lord's table should be taken seriously. We're going to get to this in due time as we get into chapter 11, whenever. But this is why Paul warns in that next chapter. In chapter 11, just flip over and I'm back in 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27. He says this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It would be a mistake to think that those words don't apply. 
I, I would put it this way. The Lord's Supper is only for believers. And of them, it is only for those who are seeking to live repentantly. That doesn't mean that you have to be perfect or none of us would ever be able to take communion. It doesn't mean, it even doesn't mean if you had a fight on the way to church with whoever's in the car with you, that you therefore shouldn't participate. It doesn't mean that. If you're a believer, there is what? Therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Eat and drink. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's continue here. We will get into those warnings when we get to that passage, and I'll bring them up again here in a moment. Fellowship with Christ excludes all other fellowships, is what he's getting at here. Christianity is exclusive and it is covenantal. Like your marriage is covenantal. Listen to what he will write in his second letter to the church, to this church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has, partnership, that's the same word, has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord's Supper is a, is a covenant meal. When we come and eat, we are renewing our covenant vows. We are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. Paul is stressing here that blessing the cup and partaking of the bread in the supper, it forges a, a unique relationship that excludes participation in any idolatrous meals. That would be spiritual adultery. Secondly, we can clearly see this, especially from verse 17. The Lord's Supper generates this, this koinonia, this partnership, fellowship, communion. It, it does this with fellow celebrants, those sitting next to us in the pews. Pretend they're pews for a moment. The way Paul describes the supper, it highlights the communal, the group character of the meal, does it not? We give thanks for the cup. We break bread together. We see this played out in one of my favorite verses about the church is Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We could say it like this. Because there is but one loaf, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Because there is but one bread, the believers, the many believers who come together at the Lord's table are one body. And we know that the Spirit who brings us together as one is working 
because Christ sent him. It's the Spirit of God. It is Christ who brings us together as one. But the communion meal affirms and reinforces this unity in bringing us together in Christ. I'm going to make you turn to one more passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Just turn a couple of pages over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 22. Specifically, Paul is talking about the union that we have uh, between Jew and Gentile here. But the point stands. So Ephesians 2.11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at one time you were at that time alienated, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's us. We are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's argument throughout these chapters is that it is impossible to be united with Christ and united with his people while at the same time being united with idols or with demons, he actually says. Verse 21. And then the third reason that Christians must flee idolatry in light of the Lord's Supper is because of the emphasis on the body and blood of Christ, which shows us the seriousness of this covenant allegiance to God. What does it mean that Christ shed his blood in making the new covenant? Remember, he said, this cup is my blood, the new covenant. What does it mean that Christ shed his blood in making the new covenant? Well, to understand that, listen to, you don't have to turn here, but listen first to Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. This is where God makes a covenant with that wilderness generation. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain when 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant meant, and this sacrifice is connected to the covenant and the blood that was shed. It told everybody that if you break the covenant, may this happen to you. The people of Israel are saying, if we break the covenant, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. If we break the covenant, may that blood shed be ours. But he also threw blood onto the altar. And the Lord said, if, if I break the covenant, may the blood shed be mine. But what we don't know until we get to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. For if the blood of uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. They broke the law. We, we broke the law. We broke the covenant, and Christ shed his blood. He stood as our substitute. His blood was shed because we couldn't keep the law. Now, let me get technical for just a second. Most of us in here, as far as I know, are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. That means that we were outside of the law and the covenant. We stood condemned in sin without hope and without God. But in Christ, he opened up for us a way of salvation and adopted us into his own family. And so this fellowship, this partnership, this communion in the blood of Christ, it, it parallels those words of institution that I read every week. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, in his death, created a new covenant between God and his chosen people. And breaching this covenant can only have disastrous consequences. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul answers this question in chapter 11, verse 30, remember? This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because they provoked the Lord to jealousy and are not stronger than him. Well, I need to mention that in verse 18, Paul brings up the wilderness generation of Israel again and their idolatry with the golden calf. In verse 18, he's referring back to verse 7, which says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, the wilderness generation, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's reminding them that the people of Israel completely betrayed the Lord by fellowshipping at their false altar. And there was a communal aspect to their sin. It was essentially a pagan communion meal that they ate together. As he says there in verses 19 and 20, this was no small thing. In fact, it straight up led to immorality. That's, that's the phrase, and they rose up to play. That's a euphemism for immorality. 
We can see throughout this passage the seriousness with which Scripture takes idolatry. Paul agrees that, he says, yes, it's just food. But they were in real danger of aligning themselves with demons. And that pits them as enemies of God, provoking him to jealousy. And while we can look at the, we can look at the Lord's Supper as just a dry piece of unleavened bread, as a bit of the fruit of the vine, as Jesus calls it, a sip of Dr. Welch's unfermented wine, was the original name, grape juice. We could look at it as a simple snack to hold us over till lunch, one that probably doesn't do a very good job of that. But it is a fellowship with Christ and with his church in which Christ strengthens us and nourishes us by faith, reminding us of his covenant with us. That 1689 confession that the Baptists of England wrote says it like this. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, for their spiritual nourishment and growth in him and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of our communion with Christ and with each other. So let's pray, and then let's come to the table together as we pledge ourselves again to the one who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, to the one who has promised us, I will be your God and you will be my people, to the one who has promised us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of his work on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you We have to thank you for the bread and the cup. We have to pray that you would bless bless it to us as we eat and drink. Not in the same way that we ask for a blessing of lunch later. But Lord, in a way that reminds us of Christ's work on the cross. That encourages our faith that builds us up to remember, even as we taste the bread and, and, and taste of the, of the cup, that we were, would taste and see that the Lord is good. That we would be reminded of Christ's propitiation for our sin, his redemption of us, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. That you would continue to work in and through this church as we teach our children. As we pass on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That we would stand firm. 
And that we would obey your commands, Lord, even as the people of Israel said that they would and yet didn't. But Lord, we can do it in a different way because we know, we know as your people that there is no condemnation. And so Lord, I pray that we would obey your commands because we love you. Because you have first loved us and given, have given your son to die for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.